few years back, I did a harbour bridge climb. A friend of mine had a double pass, and uh, his wife was afraid of heights, didn't want to go with him, so he asked me along, which was great, until we woke up on the day of the climb, and it was one of those really shocking days in Sydney. Dark clouds, uh, torrential rain, just very disappointing. And so we headed off for the bridge climb, feeling a bit flat about that, a bit disappointed. But as it turned out, it was a fantastic experience precisely because it was so wet. The Harbour Bridge was transformed into this amazing collection of waterfalls, literally hundreds of them every, everywhere you looked. And the climb itself turned into this really quite, we got soaked, but it was this exhilarating, really spectacular experience that in all honesty we just weren't expecting. Now friends, what I experienced that day of experiencing, of expecting something to be gloomy and depressing, but it actually turning out to be something really positive, I'm hoping that's what's going to happen this morning with today's chapter from Isaiah. Because you may have noticed as Andrew was reading it to us, that today's chapter is all about the judgment of God. Again. And it's about this stage of the book that you're starting to think, oh, hang on, haven't we been here before? Why all this stuff about judgment coming up yet again? Didn't we just get almost 13 chapters of that last week? Isaiah's been banging on about the judgment of God ever since chapter 1. Starting to get a bit depressing. But I'm hoping that this chapter won't be depressing at all. I'm hoping that... Uh, what we think might be a depressing sort of chapter actually turns out to be a positive one, which is exactly what Isaiah uh, wants us to feel. You can tell that by the way the chapter opens and closes. We heard how it opened a little earlier when Andrew read it. Verse 1, Woe to that reef, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. We'll get to hear what exactly he's talking about there in a tick. But notice that it at least opens with a word of woe. It opens on a gloomy note, sorrow, distress. But skip to the end and look at how it finishes in the chapter in verse 29. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel, magnificent in wisdom. It's interesting, isn't it? The chapter opens on a note of judgment, but it closes on a note of praise, an almost celebration about who God is. I think we're meant to see that here is a chapter that is going to tell us some things about the judgment of God that that should actually be an encouragement to us. The first encouraging thing the chapter wants to tell us is the rightness of God's judgment. And in many ways, this is the biggie of the chapter because it's spelled out firstly in regards to Ephraim and then in regards to the tribe of Judah. Now, by Ephraim, Isaiah is collectively referring to the northern tribes of Israel who had broken away from Judah in a civil war quite a few years before Isaiah. Now, these northern tribes are collectively called Ephraim here. That's because when they first broke away from Judah, their very first king was a guy named Jeroboam, and he came from the tribe of Ephraim. And so just for convenience, instead of always having to call them the northern tribes of Israel, sometimes they're just called Ephraim. 
And at this stage of their history, God is not at all pleased with them. And so in verse 1, he describes their capital city, Samaria, as a wreath of flowers. Because in its heyday, their capital city was a beautiful city. It was the head of a fertile valley which ran into the Mediterranean. It was a bit of a tourist hotspot. And so God symbolizes it as a wreath, wreath of flowers. But it's a wreath that he intends to wreck. Verse 1 again. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunks, drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley. To that city, the pride of those, those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcibly to the ground. Imagine a, a, a wreath of flowers like the ones that got laid during the week at Anzac Day. Imagine one of them left outside in a massive hailstorm, massive windstorm. It would be shredded. That is what God is going to do to the capital city of Ephraim. Why? Well, it's because her leaders, we are told in verse 1, are arrogant drunks. Verse 7 is even more blunt. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They, they reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. There's not a spot without filth. Deliberately provocative verses. These leaders are a hopeless bunch. Especially so because out of their pride, they are refusing to listen to God. That's what verses 9 and 10 are all about. You'll notice that these verses are in quotation marks because these are what these drunken leaders are saying about God. Verse 9, who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he trying? Is he explaining his message? To children? Weaned from their milk? To those taken from the breast? See, these drunken idiots are so full of themselves that they resent being told what to do by God. They, they're thinking, what, who does God think he is to tell us, to treat us like children, to tell us what to do? All God ever says, they reckon in verse 10, is do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, little here, little there. Now, the original words there are almost untranslatable. No one can really agree what those words mean, and they're probably made-up words. And that the rulers are, in fact, saying that God's word to them is nothing but baby talk. Goo-goo-goo, ga-ga-ga. We are so beyond that sort of baby stuff to do with God. It's a very dangerous attitude to have with the God of all the universe. And so with a sense of real irony, God says, well, you think my words are gibberish? I'll give you gibberish. I will speak to you through the gibberish of an invading foreign army. Verse 11. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. Verse 13. So then the word of the Lord to them will become do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little there, a little there, so that they will go and fall backward, be injured, be ensnared, be captured. To the rulers of Ephraim who pride themselves on the beauty of their capital city and who think that God's word to them is unintelligible prattle, 
God is going to destroy their city and he will speak to them in prattle that they can't understand. He will speak to them in judgment through the foreign language of an invading army who historically does turn out to be Assyria. But I think these verses are leading us to see, fair enough. I mean, these guys deserve it. Uh, If someone started turning up at work drunk and then they kept telling their boss to just shut up and stop telling them what to do, it's pretty reasonable grounds for dismissal, I'd be thinking. That's what we're meant to be seeing here. Here is a righteous act of judgment, the rightness of God's judgment on these jokers. They deserve what they're getting. And the verses are deliberately shocking, all those, uh, that, those references to vomit being all over the table. We're meant to see that God is right here. And look, there's no sense at all of God losing his temper about it, despite how, uh, how uh, uh, hopeless these guys are. The text is still all very steady and deliberate and measured and thought through. For here is a God who is judging because it's justified. Here is a God who, when he does hand down punishment, it's appropriate. It fits the crime. That's right. And this rightness to God's judgment, it now further gets highlighted as the chapter goes on because Isaiah moves from his judgment of Ephraim, which are all the northern tribes, remember, to now his judgment of Judah, the southern tribe. We'll move more quickly here because in some ways it's exactly the same lesson. It's the rightness of God's judgment. It's just that the reason behind the judgment is a bit different. Because now here with Judah, the reason for his judgment on them is not so much their drunkenness and their disregard of his word, although that's always that's also there as well from other parts of the text. The reason that's picked on here is that they have chased after a military treaty with another country. Now, the other country... Uh, is not named in this chapter, but when we get to chapter 31, it's named as Egypt. Judah has entered into a treaty with Egypt because they think that it will protect them from Assyria when Assyria comes down through the northern tribes. Here in verse 15, though, God calls their treaty with Egypt a covenant with death. And he goes on to say it's not worth the paper it's written on. Look at verse 18. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, which is a reference to Assyria, you will be beaten down by it. See, Egypt will turn out to be no help to Judah whatsoever. Or to put it another way, to change the image a little bit, having made their bed with Egypt, Judah will have to lie in it. And they will discover that it's not all that comfortable. Verse 20, the bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. It's a lovely little poetic image of how Judah's cosy little arrangement with Egypt will in fact provide no comfort to them whatsoever. Surprise, surprise, that's exactly what happens in history. Egypt turned out to be no help for Judah whatsoever. But again, more to the point of this passage, we're meant to be seeing again the judgment of God now on Judah. It's right. This is proper, especially given its context within the book of Isaiah. Because, I mean, think about it. Last week, we looked at 14 chapters all about how man's kingdoms will come and go. And Egypt was named as one of those that will just come and go. But the kingdom of God, that lasts forever. So put your trust in that. Don't trust in alliances with other nations. Put your trust in God. 
And even before then, even before they entered the promised land, back in the book of Deuteronomy, God's been telling his people, don't bother making treaties with other nations. It's a sign of distrust of me. Don't do it. It's not as if Judah hasn't been told. It's not as if they haven't been warned. And yet they still make a treaty with Egypt? Really? During the week I read, I read a story about a woman who collapsed at a diner in Las Vegas. The diner's name was the Heart Attack Grill. And they serve up burgers called the Quadruple Bypass Burger. The nutritional content of that particular burger is 10,000 calories. That's the equivalent of 21 Big Macs in one hit. Based on an average calorie intake, if you were to down a bypass burger for lunch today, that, you're pretty well right till Friday. Back to Las Vegas, and the, the woman was wheeled out of the diner by paramedics. In an interview, the owner of the diner wished her a full recovery, but added, she got what she asked for. There's labels about the content of the burger all over the, all over the walls. Judah making a treaty with Egypt is about as sensible as a person with a heart complaint walking into a diner called the Heart Attack Grill and ordering the one called Bypass Burger. God has been warning them ever since Moses. There have been labels up all through the Old Testament and they still do it. We are again meant to see that God's judgment is hardly unreasonable. As with Ephraim and now with Judah, what we are seeing is a God who does punish, sure, but it's deserved. In fact, by the time you get to verse 21 in this chapter, you're almost getting the distinct impression that, yeah, he is judging, but he's had to be really pushed to do it. He'd rather not. It is, in fact, an alien task for him to do. Verse 21. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now those references about God doing things at Mount Perizim and Valley of Gibeon, both of those are events in the Old Testament, earlier on in the Old Testament, where God helped protect his people in great displays of power but he protected them from their enemies. But in verse 21, it's saying that now God is going to raise up this time to use his power against his people rather than for his people. But you've got to know that is an alien task for God to have to do. This is a strange work for God to do. There is a sense in which God is not wired to do this against his people. There's a real sense in which he is an unwilling judge. But he's holy. He's just. And so God can't just sweep sin and irresponsibility under the carpet, nor would we want him to. Don't you feel outraged when someone goes before the court and gets off scot-free for things they've done wrong? But at the same time, despite the rightness of the judgment, God doesn't like doing it. It's no small thing. From, it's an alien task. This is a good corrective for us so far in Isaiah because so far in the book there's been a lot of talk about judgment and punishment and sin 
And it's really easy to misunderstand what God's like because of that. And to think that God is somehow mean-spirited and that he enjoys beating up on people. That God's a bit of a cosmic, grumpy old man who's looking for excuses to be angry with us. Even amongst Christians, you sometimes get people saying, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love. That's not it at all. People who reckon that just haven't read their Old Testaments very well. God will judge sin, sure. His holiness and his perfect sense of justice demands that. But when he judges sin, that's an alien task. He doesn't want to do that. He would much rather bless. Think of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, making his way to Jerusalem, knowing full well what's going to happen to him there, how he's going to be treated there, knowing full well that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be lied about, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be killed. And yet what does Jesus do in Luke 19 as he comes over the hill and he sees Jerusalem in the distance? He weeps. He doesn't want judgment to fall on it, despite how they're going to treat him. The alienness of having to judge people is also clearly seen at the cross itself. At the cross, in a... a, Amazing mystery, God takes punishment and judgment somehow into him very, into his very self. So judgment, justice is upheld at the cross. Sin is punished. But at the same time, it's such an alien task for God to have to judge people that he would rather bear it in himself. He is truly slow to anger and quick to forgive. Now, you roll all this up in what we've already seen about the rightness of God's judgment. And I think this chapter is giving us a very powerful profile of what God is like. Yes, he will judge sin, sure. His holiness and his sense of justice demands that, rightly so. But when he does judge, it's not malicious. It's not over the top. It's right. It's deserved. It fits the crime. And yet despite that rightness, he still doesn't enjoy having to do it. It is an alien task. And he would much, 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 much rather bless. And having shown shown us this about God, the chapter finishes with a bit of a parable about a farmer so as to show us what our response to all this should be. Look, for example, at verse 23. Listen, hear my voice. Now, after all that we've seen about God, pay attention. Hear what I say. When a farmer ploughs for planting, does he plough continually? Does he keep on breaking up and harrowing the soil? The point is being made that the farmer doesn't do the same thing all the time in every situation. Sometimes he harrows, sometimes he ploughs, sometimes he plants. Then in verses 27 and 28, when he wants to make a loaf of bread, he uses a whole range of tools. He uses them each in different times. It's making the point in this parable that a farmer changes what he does according to the materials he's working with, according to the stage he's at, according to what he wants to achieve. That's God in his judgments. He doesn't do the same thing in life all the time. Sometimes God will judge someone immediately. Sometimes he will hold off. 
Sometimes he judges one way. Sometimes he judges another way. But whatever he does, he knows what he's doing. Whatever he does, his judgment is right. And whatever he does, his actual first preference is to bless. And it's leading us to that conclusion in the very last verse. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel, magnificent in wisdom. We have a family dentist that we have been seeing for over 30 years now. Uh, We've been seeing him for that long because not only is he good at what he does, but he also knows us. Uh, He's a friend, he's a Christian, he gets what we're on about, he understands our lifestyle as a family, he's aware of what we can afford, what we can't afford, and because he's a friend, we have confidence that he's not interested in ripping us off or being uh, flippant in, in his recommendations. So when Bob suggests something needing to be done, we're confident that it needs to be done. And if it hurts a bit more than we would have liked... And if it costs a bit more than we would have liked, we figure, well, it had to be that way, otherwise Bob would have done it another way. And it's good when that sort of stuff can happen in life. It's good, Isn't it good to be able to entrust things to people that you can actually have real confidence in? That's what this chapter in Isaiah is wanting us to see about God. It's profiling for us what God is like so that we don't misunderstand him. It's showing us what God is like so that we appreciate that within all this, this talk of judgment that we've been getting in the book, it's not because God's vindictive. It's not because he's unreasonable. Far from it. He only judges when it's deserved. And when he does judge, it's right. He'd much rather bless anyway. And friends, this is helpful to know about because life can be confusing, can't it? Life can be surprising. Unexpected bad stuff can happen. Unexpected good things can happen. Suddenly, with just one phone call, you can enter a long period of struggle, a long period of grief, times of injustice, times of unfairness. Maybe there have been times when you've been ripped off, robbed, and the people who did it just seem to get away with it scot-free. Sometimes there are times in life when you just wish God would tell you a bit more about why it's happening the way it's happening. But he doesn't. That's life. But friends, whatever life throws at us, even this week, God wants you to know that behind it all is someone you can trust. And even if things don't go our own way, And even in this week, we get poorly treated and we feel as if no one's noticed and no one's prepared to help. Isaiah wants us to console ourselves with the truth. God's noticed and that's enough. Because one day, it'll all be sorted. It is exactly what Jesus himself did at the cross. The end of 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
That's what this chapter is all about. So friends, this week, let's try and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Because whatever happens, it all comes from the Lord Almighty. And he is wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. I'll pray. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for helping us to not misunderstand what you're like. Thank you that you are slow to anger, but that you are just and fair. Thank you most of all that you are very quick to forgive and that your first heart's desire is to bless. And we thank you that we see that so, so very clearly in Christ's death on the cross for us. Father, we pray that as a result of the things that you've explained to us this morning in your word, that we would indeed entrust our lives to you with confidence. Amen.